Hiya, Duncan Green here, bringing you up to date with the latest uh, post on From Poverty to Power. It's a rainy, grey Friday morning in, uh, in London. But I did, well, we're all in lockdown now, again, but I did manage to get a holiday uh, walking in the west of England, which is the rainiest part of the country. But the rain wasn't the worst bit. The worst bit was being trapped on an open hilltop in the middle of a hail blizzard. Um, which was really quite epic. Um, anyway, it was still good to be out uh, from London and see the leaves and all that when it wasn't raining. Um, and we did get it in just before lockdown. Now we're going to be stuck here at least till Christmas, I think, and maybe beyond. But anyway, that gives me more time to blog <clears throat> and more time to catch up and more time to drink coffee. So I've got quite a lot to catch up on, so I'm not going to do reposts or links I liked. I'm just going to do new content um, and uh, see how that goes. So the first post I want to talk about is um, a piece of research which I caught up on, uh, on which developing countries have managed to reduce income inequality and why. This is something I've been um, you know, asking about for years, wanting people to do. I did a little bit of work on it myself. Rebecca Simpson and Mike Savage have a paper on this in the Third World Quarterly, but it is gated. You have to pay to read it, and I never talk about those. I don't link to gated journals. They are incredibly exclusive. They're basically only academics read them, so I just want to uh, not have anything to do with them. But luckily, uh, Mike sent me a copy of an earlier paper that um, uh, Rebecca wrote summarising the same arguments, um, so I'll talk a bit about that. And the, <clears throat> what she did was really brilliant. It's a kind of exercise in historical positive deviance. She's gone back and identified episodes of inequality decline in the period since 1980, when all the yeah when income inequality is thought to have been stagnant or rising across most of the developed world. So they went to look at developing countries and say, okay, have has inequality actually been falling in any of these? They use the Gini index, which is quite contested and you know uh, disputed as a, a, a measure of inequality, but it's what they had. And they identified 27 developing countries, uh, 27, okay, where um, inequality in the Gini had, had been sustained uh, during, at some point during the past few decades. Um, half of those countries were in Latin America. That's a very well-known story of uh, a combination of a commodity boom, centre-left governments, spending on cash transfers. You know, there's a well sort of, that's the best known bit of positive uh, redistribution. The interesting bit for me were the, the other bits she found apart, the, the, other, the other half of these countries. So <clears throat> the other cluster she found was Iran, Tunisia and Algeria. Three countries led by repressive authoritarian regimes, I'm quoting here, and characterised by considerable state intervention in the economy and active government-led redistribution, Iran, Tunisia and Algeria. And then another group of basically food producers, five West African countries, that's Burkina Faso, Guinea, Mali, Mauritania, Niger and Cambodia, where food production is in the hands of poor rural smallholders um, and they got better prices basically, um, in, in, uh, mainly since 2005. Um, and that meant that they actually did better and that reduced inequality. And then a couple of idiosyncratic cases, very, you know, uh, very hard to uh, sort of draw general conclusions from what happened, but Thailand and Malaysia both reduced inequality there. And they, then she talks about the cross-cutting themes which emerge from these various clusters. More coffee, jolly good. Um, First is that they started from a very high 
level of inequality. So there is a there is an argument that there is some kind of inequality frontier. And if you get too close to it, then political forces kick in and say, this is ridiculous and pull you back. So there seems to be a bit of a ceiling, a political ceiling on acceptable, politically acceptable levels of inequality, which is really interesting. Favourable commodity prices. So if you're a food producer, that means you earn more. If you're a uh, if you're a country that has a lot of mining, for example, that means that suddenly there's a lot more income for governments to spend on things like cash transfers and public services. So commodity price cycle, very important, if managed well. OK, it's a big if. And then but there's also a political aspect. So she talks about an active political discourse around redistribution and policy reforms, including new movements, new political parties, new actors coming in and saying, you know, We've got ideas. We want to change the world. So a nice combination of the structural and the and, and agency, and political agency in there. Great, great paper. Well worth reading, I think. Second post I want to talk about is um, actually emerged from an email from one of my students, Hannah Toda, who said, you know, I'm sitting around. I'm applying for loads of jobs. I would really like to do some online courses, which would kind of sharpen my skills and keep me yeah, active intellectually while I look for a job post master's. And so I thought, oh, that's an interesting question. Put it out on Twitter and got loads of suggestions. And then Hannah very kindly agreed to write a blog post about it. So basically, if you're a student or sitting around and applying for jobs, between jobs, whatever, and you want to take, want to do some online training, there are an enormous range of free online courses, some of which look very good indeed, which Hannah works, works her way through. So that's a real service. Thanks, Hannah, for that. The third post I want to talk about is this project we're involved in, which we've just kicked off with a webinar yesterday on emergent agency in a time of COVID. So this is saying, let's look at the grassroots politics, both of the response to COVID and the response to the responses by governments and others. Um, and we've got, you know, we've assembled quite a good network. We had about 90 people on the call yesterday uh, who are interested in this issue. Um, and I, I wrote an initial briefing um, uh, for the for the for the webinar, which kind of summarizes what we know so far, and it and it gives you what we think we are seeing in terms of patterns, a load of examples, ten pages of them in the document, but there will be lots more coming in over the next few months, and then the questions these raise for where the world might be headed, you know, what is what will be the legacy of COVID, the political legacy of COVID. So an example on the history section. What we are seeing is that the shape of emergent agency often reflects both longer term historical context and what was happening just as the pandemic broke. Um, so, you know, um, political movements around things like the um, anti-Muslim uh, anti legislation in India very quickly morphed into COVID responses. Um, history does not stop with COVID-19, so it's already interacting with things like Black Lives Matter or the uh, NSARS protests in Nigeria. So there's a kind of interaction between the, 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 the historical response and, the, you know, and, and as COVID becomes, itself becomes history, that will also feed into new responses. So the kind of questions, uh, yeah, and the examples I've got, Black Lives Matter, NSARS, um, political reform movement in Thailand, protest movement in Hong Kong, you know, all those things are going on uh, under COVID. So the questions for me are, if emergent agency differs from one country or continent to the next, really how much can activists and practitioners learn from reading about what's happening somewhere else? Um, 
And where, for me, another really interesting question is where is emergent agency actually emergent and where is it just um, existing organisations or political movements pivoting towards COVID and then presumably probably pivoting back afterwards? So we're trying to work out what's new, what's different. You know, really, it's a great project. I'm really enjoying it. Fourth post I want to talk about is a really good report by Civicus, which is along very similar lines to, to the COVID, uh, to the paper I've just described, but much more comprehensive. They've got their, a big new paper called Solidarity in the Time of COVID. Headings roughly the same as we came up with, hundreds of examples. Um, and yeah, we are building this big database uh, uh, from the work of Civicus, Carnegie Institute, bunch of other players, um, and it's, it's, it's good fun. Fifth uh, post I want to talk about is uh, why don't faith groups and anti-corruption activists work together more? This is a really interesting question for me. So you've got, it's written by Catherine Marshall, who used to run the Interfaith Dialogue at the World Bank. So actually bringing together the world's major religions and religious leaders and getting them to talk to each other about you know, shared aspirations and goals. Um, Catherine's now an academic, um, and uh, uh, but still working very much on uh, faith groups. She's got she's been working on an enormous repository of faith responses to COVID. So I came across her as when we were setting up this emergent agency pro project. But she said that this was uh, you know, something she wanted to write about, and her starting point is that. Religious actors and transparency, accountability, anti-corruption advocates ought to be natural allies. They care about the same things. Um, you know, faith-based uh, organisations are very big on trust, on social uh, um, uh, responsibility, on norms. They have a kind of moral compass which says that uh, corruption is wrong. It's theft. And yet, they hardly work together. Um, you know, the, the religious actors, religious leaders will denounce co corruption from a moral point of view quite often, but they don't then talk to the transparency geeks who are working away doing campaigns on transparency and, and, and anti-corruption as much as they should do. There are obviously there are some contacts, but not enough, according to Catherine. And she puts it down to the ways of working and thinking within both groups. And I'm just going to read a bit because I thought it was very well put. Integrity alliances, so that's all the corruption, anti-corruption people, have tended to steer arguments towards technical approaches to fighting corruption, somewhat leery about an emphasis on morality and values as arguments for action. Views about religious communities can be coloured by preconceptions that include religious ties to corrupt governments, ethical failings within religious communities themselves, and positions taken by more conservative groups on issues like LGBTQ and women's rights. From the religious side, anti-corruption strategies can seem overly secular and technocratic. Arguments are often made that it takes two to tango with corruption charges weighted towards poor countries, while broader moral failings of global systems are obscured by a narrow focus on specific corrupt practices that lay most blame on those in poor countries. So I thought it was a great summary of how you can have two groups of people who ought to be working together but the way they work and the way they see the world and the language they use stop them collaborating and make the overall movement weaker. Um, and I think there's a, it's a particular problem with faith organisations. Catherine was one of the speakers at our webinar yesterday. Yeah, in that there's such a vast spectrum of politics within political organisations on something like gender rights, um, from the most progressive to the most reactionary. And what happens is that people outside that faith world just look at that and go, Ooh, I'm not going there, I'm not going to touch it. But they lose something by, by feeling like that. 
Okay, then the last piece I want to talk about is a rather uh, is a piece I, I, I wrote on the US elections. Now, it's always a high risk thing for someone as far away and uninvolved um, in a country's politics to write about it. But I thought I'd give it a go just because we've all been glued to the TV and the social media uh, watching the US elections. And there's been a lot of really interesting discussions. So for my uh, partner, um, I chose Paul O'Brien, who's an old friend, who's head of advocacy at Oxfam America. Uh, who's just got a book out called Power Switch, which I'll, prob- I'll try and review in the next couple of weeks. He wrote a book predicated on a Biden victory. So he must have been really, really anxious on election night when it didn't look like it was going that well uh, in terms of the Biden camp. Um, so we did a kind of Eeyore versus Tigger. I was Eeyore saying, oh, it's not as good as we hoped. It's all terrible. And Paul did that. Tigger, look, isn't it great? You know, we're, we're bouncing away. So my point was, you know, Hold on a minute. Donald Trump increased his vote and by a lot. Okay, He got 71 million votes this time compared to 63 million votes in 2016, despite or maybe because of all the things he'd said and done in the meantime. You couldn't argue he was an unknown quantity by by this you know, by 2020. And yet he increased his vote. So I went back to what I wrote to a piece I wrote just after he was elected the first time in 2016. And they basically argued that if yeah we have to take this seriously, this is a lot of people who are not terribly privileged. They may be mainly white, but they're not privileged voting for something. And we can't understand why they appear to be Turkey's voting for Christmas in terms of tax cuts and elite dominance of, of politics. Um, and that yeah we have to get out of our filter bubbles. We have to get out of our comfort zones and we have to engage and understand and work on longer term conversations and bridge building. And when I read that, I thought, wow, we did that for about five minutes. And then we went back to our, they're all stupid, they're all wrong. How can they think this kind of um, comfort zone? So I was pretty sort of dis- dismayed when I saw how little, when it seemed to me how little had, had been done in terms of reaching out to those 70 million now, um, that 70 million base for populism. Paul um, was a much more, had a much more positive take. He generally does. Um, he argues that a big chunk of those 70 million can still be reached, although he didn't explain why they hadn't been reached already. Um, but he focused on the really exciting thing about this election, um, what Stacey Abrams and other women leaders, workers, youth and climate activists did in places like Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta and Milwaukee. And he argues that this reset this country's direction and political identity. Um, and then he, he concluded, and I'll stop for the, this week here, we agree that the amazing electoral result of 2020 won't necessarily deliver progressive change. And activists must keep shifting public energy norms and reach across the aisle to deliver a lasting power switch. The name of his book. We disagree on how, but we disagree on how hard that will be or that we still live in the same world as 2016. As the saying goes, and he gets a bit pointed here, pessimists are usually right and optimists are usually wrong, but all the great changes have been accomplished by optimists. 2021 is a year for optimism. So that's me told. And as usual, it's amazing how often I feel this. I hope I'm wrong and I hope he's right. And on that note, have a good weekend. Bye.